So this is the fourth uh, thing of this. Remember that crazy illustration, a chicken scratch thing with, uh, you know, love being the creator and love being the redeemer and then our response and then our expectations. This is the expectation part. Um, this idea that whatever our view of eschatology, uh, however we interpret all those scriptures, as we look to the future, I really think it's going to be handy if we keep in mind that the future comes to us from the same one that, that created, from the same love that created. The future's coming to us from the same one who poured out his heart in redemption. Uh, the future is coming to us to be received the same way we receive re, uh, redemption, which is to receive it, to know and believe the love that God has for us. And so I was a little nervous getting to this last part because I, I want to kind of preface it. I've got some review before I... Uh, so I don't want to go there quite yet on the things. We'll pound, pound through those pretty quickly. But the last part is, is what, what expectations? You know, what do we expect of the scripture? What do we expect of the promises? What do we expect of the last days? What do we expect of the end times of judgment and all those sorts of things? And there's, a, there's no way that I'm going to hesitate to make the same point, which is the one who is spirit and fire and light and love and love is the same one that holds the future. And it, and, and he is the same one through whom the future is coming. And it's critical that we remember that no matter what the circumstances look like. And also in a way, no matter what the scripture reveals, because we're still responsible to receive and to trust and to interpret that scripture in a way that doesn't violate who we know God to be. And so it's a little bit of a tricky thing. There's no possible way I'm going to be able to get uh, in any depth tonight about it, but I am going to make uh, somewhat of an introduction and get you thinking and make some suggestions. Um, and then we'll see where that goes after that. Uh, I, I plan on this being the last in this particular series because next week is the, the Friday before Christmas, and I really want to just enjoy the, the whole, all, the joy that's available in, in Christmas. Uh, so anyway, this will be the last season or the last episode of this one. Let's do a little bit of review. So remember, love created, commissioned, and rested. We all agree on that. There's the scriptures. Uh, in the beginning was the word. Let us make man in our image. Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14 is that thing where we're predestined to be conformed to the image. So the early thoughts, the early structure of creation, the early beginnings of everything was created by the one who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. And then that same love was sent, and that brought redemption. And so you, you remember that the whole, like the crown of thorns thing, superimposed by the same love. So there's no uh, pitting Jesus against the Father. There's no uh, phase one, phase two, that kind of thing. We're, we're dealing with the one who is love. Okay. Um, how should we respond to that? I went through this in detail. I just want to review it. We can try to ignore it, but that's costly because it costs you everything that's good in life. And we can acknowledge it or receive it. These are the only two choices. But how do we do it? Well, you can accept it as a concept, something to think about, 
as a doctrine, as a gift, or as a duty. But we talked about a couple weeks ago that I think the best way is to think of it as a relationship of love. As a relationship of love. Because that's what it is. Uh, it was a person that the Father sent. It was for the motive of a heart of love that he sent him. And it was all done for that. So that is, so you guys are up to snuff, and I think most of you saw that anyway that we're here. Uh, so this is where I do want to, I left a couple steps in here and didn't condense it. What should we expect from love who creates? And keep in mind, the reason I'm reviewing this and using the term love who creates and love who redeems is we can probably apply many of the very same aspects to the love who is bringing us the future, to the love who judges. And if you've been in church like I've been in church, that isn't what we've done. We, we, we haven't tried to understand judgment from the one who is love. And we haven't tried to understand all that other stuff. So we're gonna, that's what we're gonna give a whirl at. So anyway, uh, right now, remember, Jesus is reigning from heaven. And Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 6, predestined to conform to the image of Jesus. That's one of the expectations. So love is not just a vague thing. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, uh, love is spelled out. Most of my life I grew up with that being put on me as a duty. Uh, I'm totally willing to accept that responsibility if I keep it first in mind that there is a description of who God is that lives in me and how God is when he deals with me. Because it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God created uh, everything and all that is with the desire to be all in all. So we'll keep that in mind. We'll look at that in a little more detail tonight. Uh, John 17, 26, he's loving us with the same love that he has for his son. I still think that's one of the most astounding scriptures that never gets preached on. <laughs> Father, that you would love them with the same love with which you loved me. When I challenged the Lord on that one time a few years ago, I said, Lord, I don't know how that's even possible. He said, well, how would it be otherwise? You think I have different kinds of love? And I go, I guess not. <laughs> so that was, you know, it helped. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The negation side of that is over in, um, I think, 2 Timothy 3, where it says, God's not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. I want us to keep that in mind, and I want us to give that value. I don't want us to feel like we've got to explain how that's going to happen. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, too. And then lastly, in Acts 3.19, it, is, it appears that God has always, when he's thought about creating, when he thought about redeeming, he always thought about the reconciliation of all things. And so I want us to just keep that in mind, because it's been talked about in the prophets and all that kind of stuff. Um, what must we believe about the love who redeems? Well, we need to know and believe the love he has for us. It's not complicated. Ephesians 3, 14 and 19 says that we should know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So what does that mean? That means sometimes, Jen, that being loved isn't going to feel like it. We're not going to know what it's touching our worth. It's not going to meet our expectations because we're being loved with a love that embraces more than we can know. And I don't think that it means that God stops loving us sometimes. I don't think he can stop being who he is. But I think it's important that we realize that sometimes 
it's going to be, love is going to be not seeking his own, not holding our sins against us, organizing and doing and looking for our best interests, planning for our good in ways that we may for a season not understand. And I've had some of those in my life where I realize I look back and hindsight is a little more, you know, acute. Wow, I can see what you were doing, Lord. John thirteen thirty four. the simplicity of the new commandment is loving. This is another, the reason I wanted to review this scripture again is if you get stuck like I do and many do in measuring the effectiveness of you doing your duty, you need to realize that your only real duty, the fundamental baseline duty, is to love the people around you the way Jesus loved you. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of apostolic and biblical instruction is love, not uh, a precision exegesis, not a system of doctrines that is unassailable. The goal of our instruction is love from a sincere heart and a pure faith. And then lastly, love casts out fear and prepares us perfectly for judgment. And that's what this fourth step is about. What are our expectations? Because I think that a lot of believers in our culture have elements of fear sewn into their expectations about the future and about God and about judgment and about all those sorts of things. And it's understandable. We'll look at it a little bit tonight. But love came down. It was sent. And so uh, we're in it. We're in it. Now, this symbol is going to change in just a minute, uh, but I'll get to that in a sec. So for tonight's focus, I want to talk about the the hope that is intrinsic to love's victory. So we have Jesus reigning from heaven until all his enemies are put under his feet, and then he's going to submit the kingdom to his Father, and God's going to be all in all. And hope is intrinsic in that. Hope is intrinsic in that love. So notice that it switched a little bit. Uh, I've got spirit in front. So I started thinking about these symbols that I was using, and I realized, okay, it's almost like the if you could envision these uh, spirit, fire, light, love, love, as, as a, a three-dimensional cylinder type thing. I don't know how to illustrate it on there. You know, my, I'll work on it when I have more time. But every now, God is always each of those. They never compete with one another. But sometimes that's what reaches out to you. Or that's what reaches into you by virtue of spirit. Or that's what, you know what I'm saying? Light is what comes. And we're going to look at two of those. And I felt like it was important to introduce that thought into the symbols that we're using so that you can understand, oh, this is you reacting as spirit to me ministering to me as spirit, loving me as spirit, or this is you loving me as fire. One of our favorites, right? <laughs> okay, so here's here's what we're going to talk about. This is where the hope comes from. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 uh, through 28, and just on both sides. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. Now that little phrase right there is why I feel the permission to, to anchor our expectation of the future, our eschatological expectations in this scripture. Then comes the end. This is the most clear doctrinal statement, apostolic teaching. Remember what the point of apostolic teaching is? Is love from a, a pure heart and sincere faith, or a sincere heart and pure faith. All right, so that's the point. Now, I've highlighted some of these things. Might as well go there now. So, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those for Christ is coming. Then the end comes. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for, and this is a direct continuation of Scripture, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that symbol of, of Jesus on the cross in the heavens, while simultaneously spirit, love, love, light, and fire being within our hearts and in this world is the Holy Spirit, convicting, convincing, uh, doing all that he does. Okay, it's the same thing going on, same thing. And I might work on changing that ruling symbol just because life-giving spirit, consuming fire, light, love, and love get a little lost in those stairs going up to the throne, but they're there. It's the central, it's still the foundation of who God is. But anyway, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What's that mean? I don't know exactly, but I know this. It means he has enemies. It means that there are enemies to the redemptive plan. There are enemies to the love and light and the beauty of God that are being brought under his feet. So in a little bit, we're going to try to figure out what the purpose of that might be. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he accepted those, accepted who put all things in subjected to him. And so then this is the, the wrap up. Our, this is the foundational wrap up of our expectation of the hope of the future. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I don't really know what to think about that. I don't know really how to explain it. But what I do see in there is this beautiful, loving, oneness-type submission going on. That there's a point where Jesus is the focal point of the incarnation. He's the focal point of the redemptive work on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit at one point is the focal point of the empowering of the church after that. But all of this is coming back to the heart that originally created out of love and out of purpose. And so there's something going on there in this, in this submission. And if you, if you think about all we've talked about, about being image bearers and being in Christ, where are we going to be when all things are submitted to him, that would be Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all, which I assume is the Father. Tim and Meg, doesn't this bring to mind John fourteen twenty? In that day you'll know that I am in my Father, you are in me and I am in you. There is something about the completeness, the oneness, that is the centerpiece of the end of all things. It's the goal that God has never let slip from his mind. And whatever our expectations are, it is that we would be 
in him as Christ is in him. One. And it's we're so accustomed to separation. We're so accustomed to thinking in terms of, of distance and isolation. And even when we get close to family or congregation, we're still a bunch of individuals in it. And I'm not saying we're going to lose our individuality. I think, though, that we need to keep in mind that the goal of this victory is that oneness. And that that is a oneness that we are experiencing now by virtue of these redemptive elements. All right, so those are the four symbols that we've used so far. And love's victory brings a new hope and a call, and it needs some new symbols. So I've come up with two more, and that's that's it. This has been a fun art project for me, frankly. I've been thinking about it. So here's the first one. Light. So you see how lights rotated to the front? Okay. Uh, I'll animate it someday. It's fun. John 3.19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Now that's a rough passage of Scripture. And it gets rough as you go on a little bit. But look at what it's really about. It's really about the same one who created. It's really just with another face forward, another, another, not even a face, just reaching to us from his being as light. And this is the, I don't understand why this isn't the quintessential statement defining what judgment is when we talk theologically. And I talk theologically with a lot of people. I've never heard anybody, except me, which might mean I'm wrong, (laughs) but (laughs) I've never heard anybody make a big deal out of the fact that the best way to understand judgment, my little theological students, is to realize that it is the manifestation of God as light illuminating the darkness showing things as they are. But that's basically what it says there, right? It's the same one that created spirit, love, fire, light, and love is the same one that is judgment. So how, what is it like to fall into the hands of judgment? What is it like to come under the scrutiny of judgment? Well, I don't think I know 100% but I know who it comes from and who it comes through. And I know that I don't need to be afraid in that fear-related sense because love casts out fear. And if I'm afraid of judgment, it means there's a deficit in my understanding of who is the light. There's a deficit in my understanding of love. Now, And and this also helps me, this little rotating of the emphasis of those who God is statements, because one of the accusations that comes against this kind of stuff all the time is, oh yeah, well God is love, but, or you're talking too much about love, you're getting all weepy and mushy and, and soft. No, I'm not. I'm not. I think we trade serious understanding and faith filled confidence, we trade that for a poor view of judgment. We think judgment, I mean, depending on what theological strain you're in, you think judgment isn't even going to have any impact on you because of the substitutionary work of Jesus. But nobody ever thinks, what would it be like if I wasn't judged? 
Would I carry the ignorance and the darkness and the fear into eternity with me? Wow, that sounds like a fun heaven. Filled with nightmares and waking up in the morning and not knowing where you're at, not knowing whether you fit there. And you hear the triumphal procession or you smell that fragrance of Jesus coming around the corner and you have this little instinct rise up in you to hide. I don't want to, I don't think that's what heaven's supposed to be. I don't even think that's what life is supposed to be, frankly. And I think it's because we haven't looked at this that it is that way a little bit. So this is judgment that lights come in the world. And here's the other symbol. Fire. I don't know, for some reason that looks cool. It made fire look cooler to me. 1 Corinthians 3.13 Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So, that little blue t- subtitle there is what I want us to think about as we, as we uh, intentionally contemplate how we think about judgment and fire and all the things associated with it, punishment, purification, whatever. Light is love's judgment. Fire is love's test. Not test in the sense of, do you pass or fail? Test in the sense of, is it gold or not? Fire is love's proof. Why do we need proof? Well, because we... We've been used to living in the assumption of our own inadequacy, our own unacceptability. Even some definitions of grace, trying to make it as deep and expansive and settled as it is, and not yours, Dan, but, but, but sometimes grace is presented in such a way that it gets us, like you say, across the threshold, but it doesn't actually change anything about our life. It doesn't make us, it doesn't empower us with a vision to all of a sudden think about standing in the presence of the Father naked with His all-seeing eyes looking at us and seeing nothing but delight in those eyes. Without saying, are you senile or what? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We've cut ourselves out of the reality of the success of the redemptive work, and we are we're afraid. So anyway, love is revealing's test. What happens when judgment's light reveals something in me or you that that is incompatible with righteousness? Well, fire happens. I know I'm speaking the truth, but I can't describe to you how that works. I don't know. I don't know. But I know it's true. And it's the same one. It's him. It's not some external, distant, faraway thing. He doesn't need to create a place of fire. I'm not saying there isn't one, but I'm saying he's not restricted. The sheer act of standing in front of him and him drawing me to himself puts me in contact with fire, exposes my darkness to light, penetrates the depth of me in spirit, and it's all done as love. Okay, so let's look at a couple of details about how how love and light, 
how love's light and fire work toward his end. What's his end? To be God, uh, uh, to be all in all. His end is to save people. His end is to redeem people. Uh, John 3.16, uh, For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay. Again, I'm not going to be anywhere close to trying to explain the details. I am going to be honest about what I think tonight and uh, and then where I'm at trying to learn about it. So, here it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is Jesus' explanation of judgment, by the way. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So what was the motive for sending Jesus? So the world could be saved. Now that's not too hard to believe if you know that the one who sent Jesus is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. And that the one he sent is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. And that the Holy Spirit that he sent, consequently, with the Father is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. I think this stuff starts to make more sense. God didn't send his son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the uh, name of the only begotten Son of God. I don't, I don't want to come across like I'm disparaging the passion of the church for evangelism or evangelistic techniques or witnessing for a long time, because I'm not at all. I mean, I got saved listening to Billy Graham preach the gospel. But when we create an isolated, disconnected from God event and method, we rob people of realizing that as they react to the conviction to believe, they are reacting to love. When I was, uh, when I presented the gospel meta narrative thing that we worked out here to speak at a conference this, this last summer, because uh, I, I was asked to lead a group, and, and so I said, well, this is what I'd like to do, and I want you to understand it to the organizer. One of the things that came back is if you remember in that little meta narrative, we said, to respond uh, or to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess your belief in love. And that was challenged. It says, I don't mind you saying that, but I don't think that's true. The only way that I can understand that that wouldn't be true is if there wasn't a connection between God is love and Jesus is love because Jesus is God. So, do you see what I'm saying? So what I'm, what I'm pointing out here is that by the revelation of this light, love is being revealed. Love is being said yes to. Love is being said yes to. And probably, once we get into it, so is fire. Because it's God we're being asked to believe in. All right, so where are we at there? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That actually does remind me of one last thing, and this is going to sound harsh, but I just want us to get beyond it. 
I worry that the struggle that a lot of believers seem to have is because they believed in another Jesus other than the one who is the one sent by the Father. Um, there's no real good reason for somebody who has given themselves to Jesus, believed in his name, submitted to him, confessed him as Lord. There's no real good reason for them to go year after year after year in gross insecurity about their own salvation and their own work. And I think part of the reason that we struggle so hard to understand the grace that we stand in by faith, one of the reasons to understand that we're children of God, sons of God, is because the Jesus we said yes to is a Jesus with something short of spirit, love, fire, light, and love. And I think if we can get better as individuals, talking to our families, talking to our people, talking to people on Facebook and YouTube, whatever, talking to people in church, if we can get better understanding there's only one God and we're facing that God and he's facing us every time we deal with Jesus, every time we deal with Christ, every time we deal with the Father. The Lord our God is one. And that's the reason that it sometimes appears different. So anyway, I just think that sometimes the name of the Son of God that we believed in, Jesus, has been inadequately represented and it leads to years of unnecessary insecurity. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And again, this is the function of light. Light shows who we are and what what we're doing is and where it comes from. Now, the deed situation is is a big deal because there's the other primary passages that talk about judgment and the scary ones in Revelation talk about us being judged for our deeds, good and bad. And that's something that's been obscured through my whole theological uh, history and Assemblies of God and Baptist before that. Uh, there's no reason to be afraid of our deeds being judged, but I don't have the time tonight to explain why I think that's true. <laughs> so we'll get to it as we look more in detail to it maybe in the future. So anyhow, you see what's going on here? Light is the judgment. All right, so John or Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 that... Uh, The Father didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world could be saved. Jesus said in John 5, when he was talking about himself and the Father, uh, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. That one verse should dispel any childhood images anybody in the room had of the chick tracks where the faceless father was sitting behind the bench with a lightning bolt in his left hand and a gavel in his right. That's just not biblical. That's not what Jesus revealed. It's not what he said. It's not what he taught. And we got to get rid of those images to make room for some other images that allow 
spirit and fire and light and love and love it to rotate through our minds. Another one, John 12. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Now, there's other scriptures, and I don't have time to go through them, didn't put them on the thing, but remember there at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and his life became the light of men. What life? The life of the one who was sent not to judge but to save. So anyway, it goes on. But, but there is judgment. Judgment's a reality. And look at the relationship it begins to have with light. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Doesn't mean that judgment's not a reality. Because he goes on to say, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. So do you see how there's a relationship here that I don't think we've understood and I don't think we've given value to, that the act of judgment is the act of the release of light. And the act of the release of light is God gracing us with his literal presence. His literal presence. His life has become the light of men. Yeah, Greg. Make sure it's on. Uh, what you're what you're saying is extremely encouraging to me. Uh, Good, and you're reminding me of, uh, and I don't want to scripturalize the chosen, but I really like the chosen a lot. And there's the scene where I think most of us have seen where Jesus calls Matthew, and he's in his booth. And there's two judgments that are happening at Matthew in that scene. One is from the Roman centurion. We live in the same world, buddy. You know your place. You know the mold you sit into, and that's the deal. Stay there. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus walks by. And these actors are so good at what they do. Um, the actor that plays Matthew, they have the conversation, and Jesus calls him. And then Peter's trying to talk him out of it. And he says, do you even know him? And Jesus smiles and says, yes. And then Matthew's face changes in that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, you even know me and you're calling me? That's the judgment that I'm seeing as you're talking. Yeah. It's actually a good, refreshing thing. Yeah. It wasn't from the Roman centurion. And I think a lot of times in the church, we take the Roman centurion's judgment and we put it on Jesus, and that's not what he's doing. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think we misunderstand that, that God judges from the outside. He doesn't judge with his presence. I mean, look at, look at how God judged the initial act of the fall. Adam. Where are you? He did it with presence. I was afraid. I heard you walking, and I was afraid. Why? Well, I was naked, and I was ashamed. Who told you you were naked? I mean, you know what I'm saying. God's judgment is presence. It's a terrible burden on God. Think about it. His very presence evokes fear in people. His very presence causes people to hide in shame. That's what he had to overcome. But he never, he never said, wow, this is too difficult. I'm going to go ahead and stay back here in heaven and just give you a ticket or something. I don't think so. But that's how we've interpreted some. And I'm not, that's nobody that teaches about Reformed theology or nobody that teaches about grace. And nobody means that. I understand that totally. But what I'm saying is that we've all stopped short of the dramatic impact that the sheer presence of the one who is light 
and light and uh, spirit and love and fire has, and especially the fire part. We have we have virtually crippled ourselves from being transformed because we have relegated fire to a distant judgment of those guys. And that's really the weird and creepy point I want to make before the end of the message. But anyway, it's Jesus' presence, and it's, it's, it's also the presence of His Word. Uh, I don't exactly know how to think about what that means. Uh, as one who judges Him, the Word I spoke is what will judge. Jesus became a life-giving Spirit. His words are spirit and life. His words. Uh, and what are His words? This is uh, the commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Father, uh, I want you to love them with the same love that you love me. All these words are standing here to shine light on us through the presence of Him in our heart. So, anyway. All right, so now comes fire as a part of this. And if you think that that the light of God, which is His judgment, is related to the fire of God, not as two oxen pulling the same plow, but as one in the same person, just interacting. Now we're getting to it. 1 Corinthians 3. All right, this also is the most concise doctrinal statement about fire in the scripture in the new testament in the new testament there's a lot going on in the old testament and when we get to the point of actually looking at what the scripture says old and new about fire you're going to see some pretty amazing stuff you know like the fire that didn't burn the tree the fire that is i think it was um wasn't ezekiel it was uh was it Elijah or Elisha that did that contest against the Baal guys and poured water until it was all pooled around? And the fire came down and Elijah, the fire came down and not only ate the sacrifice, but it licked up the water. And then it licked up the stones. God's fire is able. It's able. It's not in competition with anything else. And that's what makes it so special. Because it's him. All right. But this is, this is where I feel comfortable, uh, establishing the foundational interpretive principle about fire and its role in judgment in the New Testament. This is where I begin. Okay. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So let me make a point. Your work is not going to be judged by your peers. It's not going to be judged by your enemies. It's not going to be judged by you. Paul said that even if my heart condemns me, there's one greater than my heart. Yeah, the one who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. So, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire 
and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Yes? When I was in school hmm? a long, long, long time ago, um, God was showing me stuff then that I didn't realize he was showing me, but the idea was what a test is. Because mm -hmm. I'd study for tests, and i take a test. If I pass the test, then i pass the test. Um, but it, it became clear to me that the test was to help me understand whether I knew the subject matter or not. Right. And if I didn't, then I now knew I didn't know it, and I could work on that or I could ignore it. But the test wasn't the final thing. The test was to reveal something to me. That's good. So I see that as a symbol. Yeah. And if you're the thing that is the object of the test, then it even gets more personal. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, so what's the result here? If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive reward. Now, the part there, he has built on it. Don't lose what that is. There's no other foundation except Christ. We're building our lives on Christ. The Holy Spirit is helping us build our lives on Christ. Christian discipleship is building your life on Christ. Believing faith is building your life on Christ. That's what it's all about. Okay? So that is what's going to be tested. That's what's going to be tested. I thought you were going to go into the idea of testing like gold. You know, you, you, you test it with a chemical or you test whatever. You know, it's a physical thing that reveals the truth about something. And you can see how it's related to light and judgment, right? You can see that. Okay, so uh, the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Now, before I get done tonight, I'm going to tell you guys what I believe. I don't expect you to believe that. I'm not trying to persuade you to do that. What I am trying to persuade you to do is to check your own beliefs and where you get them from, and do they allow the God who is the author of these things, both creation, redemption, um, the, his presence and rulership in our life and the end of all things. Does it allow him to remain who he is? All of who he is. Spirit, fire, light, love, and love. Or have you and I been persuaded from time to time to peel one of those off and say, okay, now God is this and now he's this. Or now he's this, but that's stopping and now he's going to be this. I don't think that's what I'm encouraging us to examine. And I don't I, I don't believe that's the best way to understand God. So anyway, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, Jesus down in Mark 9, and I didn't have room to put the whole thing on there, but if you remember, that's where Jesus said and taught some of the harshest things he ever taught. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, because it's better to go through life maimed than go to Gehenna, is the word. It's been translated hell most of the time. But to go uh, to, to Gehenna, and anyway, that's what that section's from. And it, right in the middle of it, about cutting off your hand, about throwing away your eye, all this stuff, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And then he goes right on back with the rest of the idea about the severity of judgment. Everyone. 
not just unbelievers, not just blasphemers, not just the apostate, not the uh, dummies that didn't happen to be born in the United States. That was a joke. Yeah, that was a joke. Everyone will be salted with fire. So who's going to be salted with fire? Who's going to be tested with fire? Everyone's going to be tested with fire. That's why I don't think it's proper. This is how it was taught to me when I was young. Oh, that Paul's just talking about ministry because before that he's talking about his apostolic ministry and you know he serves and so on and so forth. But I think that it's broader than that because who's not building on the foundation of Jesus? Who's not building on the foundation of Jesus? All right, so anyway, everybody's going to be salted with fire. So do you see how the light of judgment and the fire of transformation, the light of judgment and the fire of cleansing, the fire of testing, the fire of purification? Anyway. So love's light and fire will reveal and will prove or test our future. Now, I wanted everybody to know that I'm not willing to ignore anything in the Scripture. So, this is probably one of the rougher passages. Now, I don't necessarily believe the best way to look at Revelation is as doctrinal foundation. It is a apocalyptic bit of literature, prophecy, Um. I don't exactly know what that means, though. I don't know how to respond properly to that. But I don't want you to think that we have to ignore this, because we don't. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. According to their deeds. There was not a ticket scanning machine that said, did you accept Jesus? Ching, ching. Green light goes on. Did you accept Jesus? Ching, ching. Red light goes on. You over here. People are being judged for their deeds. Moms are being judged for how they love their children. Husbands are being judged for how they love their wives. Leaders are being judged for how they use their leadership skill. Believers are being judged for how they use their faith, how they treated people, how well they loved, whether or not they loved one another like Jesus loved them. I don't really understand it, guys. I don't. Because I've grown up with, with a preconditioned mind of their being uh, substitutionary critical points that I had to line up on to get this stuff. I'm not saying that those don't exist, but what I'm saying is that's what it says. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. That's weird. <clears throat> Almost got cut off. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the uh, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. I presume that means um, the ones that were dead and were given up by the sea. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. I think that's true. I feel obligated to believe that it's true because it's the scripture. What does it mean? How do we understand it? Well, if you read for another 20 or so verses, you get into the next chapter and it talks about the specifics for people that were thrown into the lake of fire. And it's about being liars is the summation of it and other things, uh, immoral, so on. Then you read another 10 verses and it talks about those being the ones outside the gate. So is the fire outside the gate? Is the lake of fire the thing that surrounds Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem? I don't know. We're going to have to look at it. There's stuff to look at. You've helped me a lot on this, Dan, because you've opened your heart to what it might not mean without sacrificing a commitment that it means something. And that's that's a good way to go. And so you've held my feet to the fire, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you see what I'm saying? So this this is something, but here's something else that has just as much value has to be given just as much value as this passage does about this. Peace be with you, Jesus said, when his disciples were scared. And he said it because whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in that day, whenever that day is. Whether we end up in front of that white throne and our deeds being judged, or whether there's a separate time or another place, that's something that I've wrestled through theologically because I've been taught it. The reason we're not there is we're not there. We're the ones that rule for the thousand years. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to probably look into it because it'd be stupid for me to introduce this concept and just leave it hanging. So we probably need to do that. But look at what it says. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. What is God's light for? To reveal the things in you and me that prevent us from having confidence in the day of judgment. What is his light for? It's to expose that which cannot last eternally, no matter what. No matter how badly we want it, no matter how much we want to cover it up. Here's why. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. God is already recognizing the reality that is going to be realized in the last time when all the enemies are put under Jesus' feet and he submits everything to the one who submitted to him. And God is all in all. That's who we are. He sees us that way. He created us to be that. Sin and the fall and centuries messed that up, made a hard road out of it, but it never dissuaded it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And we're not on our own in trying to understand love. We love because he loved us.
I think that's amazing, personally. So I believe that God is, because the Scripture is plain, this is my own personal beliefs, because the Scripture is pretty plain that God is, uh, God uh, desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that He's working toward that end. I believe that because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that He is working toward that end as love, as light, as spirit, as fire, and as love. What does that mean and how does he do that? I don't really know. I don't really know. Is it possible, I asked God one time, is it possible that we can corrupt ourselves, sincerely and truly corrupt ourselves? And I felt like he said yes. I said, is it possible that we can corrupt ourselves to the point of annihilation? And uh, where, it's, where, where there's none of us left and we're just gone or destroyed or something. And... What the Lord said to me, which only I have to deal with, I'm just sharing it so you know where my heart is. He said, yes, but the path to annihilation comes through me. I don't know exactly what that means. Now, there was a vision. I'm not going to share that with you. But it, it means that I know that God is working to realize his own desires. And I know that he has all the tools necessary. He doesn't have to reach beyond himself for those tools. He is spirit. Therefore, there's no place in my heart, there's no place in us that can be so buried that passing before his gaze, like it says in Hebrews chapter 4, that this can separate spirit from, uh, or bone from marrow, soul and spirit. There's no hidden places he can't get to. There's nothing that can withstand his fire because it is a consuming fire. It's a consuming fire. And there's nothing that is a motive behind either of those two things that isn't love. That isn't love. So I think God's going to find a way. I don't know how. I don't expect anybody else to share that thought with me. But what I do expect and what I do ask is that you would consider these things and consider these verses and other verses like this And you would make sure that your expectations, your response to God's love, your response to that redemptive work of the one who is fire, light, uh, spirit, love, and love, does not dissect him and dismiss certain aspects of of who the Scripture says he is. Let's just try to wrestle through the the amazingness of, of him being who he is and see what comes from it. And I don't think we have to ignore any Scripture and I think we can say, this sure looks like it, it's something that I don't understand, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, yeah, I'm for it, Lord. So, Ronnie? There's an Old Testament scripture that you and I wrestled through a while ago, and I never saw it in this light. Mm-hmm. That's a pun for this. Um, gotcha. It's uh, search my heart, O God, and let me know if there be any Wicked way. broken, mm-hmm. not functioning as originally intended way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah. Everlasting is likely after judgment. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. I would hope so. I think so. I think there's a lot of stuff like that. Like my anger is is but for a season, but my loving kindness is everlasting. Uh I, I will hold the sins of the Father for three generations or four generations, but then it's a thousand generations after that that the stuff gets good. It, if, if we'll let God be who he declares himself to be in the diversity of that, 
in the unity of that, in diversity. And I'm not just talking Trinitarian. I'm talking as love, as fire, as light, as all this. If we'll let him be that way, I believe the Holy Spirit will have a chance to open the Scripture up to us, old and new, in ways that maybe we haven't had in a long time. And that's the goal of this whole thing. Yes, Dan. <laughs> As I was reading today, I had a couple thoughts this week. I was reading an article, and it was on somebody was writing a journal in an academic article, and the person was complaining about was my term for father or my, you know parent daughter relationship. And this isn't a technical paper. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Was this not inclusive? And there was all these arguments wow. over that, and, you know. But I was thinking also this week between and connecting these ideas here where our reading of Scripture is so colored by our experiences and wounding. Okay, Mm -hmm. so if I read something about doing works, if I came from a works background where I was abused in the church and all that, there's all this stuff that goes up in me, goes, oh, 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 how do I explain that away and stuff? And and part of this is, as you were saying it at the end, but it's to come before God and say, how do I view this? as truth from a perspective of a whole person who isn't carrying around baggage and wounding. Amen. Amen. And if we can do that, most of these verses aren't scary. We, you know, it's like it even works. You know, grow up. You're a mature Christian. You're going to do some works. Mm-hmm. You know, but if we hear works, these are matter of fact, works, some of, know, some of these works he out. made for us before the foundation right. of the world. And so yeah. if we have yeah. the wrong woundings mm-hmm. and perspectives, everything tends to, just like I'm, the whole woke thing is, oh, you said daughter, that's not inclusive, or you said son, and there's all, it's like, don't work at the offense, work at saying, what's the wholeness? of what I'm trying to receive from this, of what God's really communicating in here in the big picture. Amen. So. Amen. I think that's absolutely true. And I think the source of understanding that wholeness or the lens to understand that wholeness is the, is, is not having, not relying on right. just deducing what God is like by reading a story or looking at a poetry or listening to history. It's letting him be right. those things simultaneously. And, and we may have to swing the pendulum. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just life. Yeah. So if I got a lot of wounding, I may have to go way over to the God's lovey schmoozy all the time and he's never going to be sad. And then there's a point where maybe I get some healing and I go, okay, there's some tough stuff I got to deal with. There's some mature things that I have to handle, but I may have to swing back yeah. and forth a little bit and that's okay. Yeah. So. It is totally okay, and and then one of the goals that comes at the, at the end of this is is in the end of the love chapter. I love this positioning. Know as we are known. God's not confused about who you are, and He has set His precise knowledge of your value, your nature, who you are. This is why the image bearing thing is important. This is why realizing that if we're made in the image of God, we're made in the image of Spirit, Light fire, love, and love more than some of the other theologically concocted image things. We're made in His image. That's who He is. If we're made in that, He knows that. And that sets the goal. It sets the challenge. It sets the target. It sets the promise of us knowing Him and knowing ourselves. So that's where we're at. Uh, I, I do think it's probably time to start talking a little bit more about how do we view some of these things about the future. And I kid you not, being down in Mexico, seeing the simple joy on the faces of so many of those people, 
I go, you must not listen to news a lot. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't feel comfortable being as happy as you are. So anyway, Father, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for your patience and your relentless pursuit of the revelation of yourself in our lives. Thank you that you have actually taken up residence in us, that we are full of your Spirit, that Christ dwells in our heart by faith, that, Father, you and your Son have made your abode in us, and that you're working both external to us and internal in us to reveal all of this stuff, to reveal who you are and who we are. And uh, we acknowledge that the Scripture says that you are spirit and that you are a fire that consumes, consuming fire, that you are light that has no darkness whatsoever, and that you are love that has sacrificed for us and love that has made us able to be confident in the face of every judgment that awaits. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, boxes up here for your offering if you'd like to give tonight. Also, we have the Tithely offer um, app that you can give. And we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gifts that you've given to Joyland so that we can do, the we do what we do here. Father, we just give you praise for the abundance that you have supplied over this congregation, over us as individuals, Father. And help us to direct our... Um, our finances, where you would like to have place them, Father, into the right areas, God, that will, that will penetrate your love into those hearts, Father. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Remember that this time of year of giving, God wants to give to you abundantly. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hey, while Richard's putting the mic away, there was one thing I wanted to share with you that the Lord said to me. I was kind of grousing around about this being complicated. And this is what God said. It isn't simple. It isn't a simple thing to talk about or think about. It is in trying to oversimplify beliefs and expectations that a brutal and heartless caricature of me and a weak and disposable caricature of you has been created. Let me read that one more time. I do think this was the Lord. I, I don't think I think of stuff like this. It isn't a simple thing to talk about or think about. It is in trying to oversimplify beliefs and expectations that a brutal and heartless caricature of me and a weak and disposable caricature of you has been created. 